when we first meet the church of Laodicea, we meet them around 62, 63 AD toward the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians. He mentions them once earlier in the letter, but at the end of Colossians, Paul introduces us to one of three cities. Um, he's written the book to Colossae, to the believers in Colossae. But nearby, in the same valley, the Lycus Valley, were two other cities. Hierapolis is one, and the other is Laodicea. The three cities were almost um, sister towns, in a way, part because they were so close together, part because they shared a lot of the same sort of life. The kind of life you live in Laodicea would have been similar to Colossae, would have been similar to Hierapolis. There were some differences, and we'll talk a little bit about one of the key differences in just a minute. But the for the most part, scholars believe that life was very similar in those three towns, that, that the towns had this similar sort of vibe about them. I grew up in Mobile, and not too far away, about an hour drive is Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola may as well be Alabama. The towns are very similar. There's some differences, yes. There's some unique things about Pensacola that aren't true in Mobile and some things that are true in Mobile that aren't true in Pensacola. But for the most part, you could feel at home in either place. If you were home in one, you could go to the other one and still feel at home. Uh, unless, the, uh, in my day, the Pensacola Ice Pilots were playing the Mobile Mystics and then Pensacola was bad, very bad. Um, the Mystics were a hockey team that that I, I grew up watching and going to games. And um, anyway, that's another story. But, but the, the, the camaraderie of the two cities, the, the competition between the two was something that was, it was kind of a, it was a good sort of rivalry. It wasn't like a, like a we hate them, they hate us kind of rivalry, but it was, it was, it was more of a friendly, competitive sort of spirit between the two towns. That's what I imagine among these three towns in the Lycus Valley. You got Hierapolis that is known for its hot springs, the hot mineral springs that, that had restorative and curative powers. Even today, we know that if you put something hot, a hot compress, or you get in some hot water when your joints are aching, or, or your ear is hurting. We were talking about earlier today putting on a hot compress on the ear that it helps relieve pain. It helps soothe achy muscles and joints. It's nice. Um, it's a good reason to go, go buy, uh, go buy a, a little, uh, sauna or, uh, something like that to, to ease the muscles and, you know, a whirlpool with heated water and that sort of thing. Um, that's, that's one of the, benefits of hot water. Or you look in Colossae. Colossae is the only one of the three towns um, that that has a book of the Bible written to it. But even in this book, it mentions a letter to the Laodiceans. And it says, hey, make sure you give this letter to Laodicea and to Hierapolis and let them both read it too. But when we come to Revelation around the end of the first century, it's a very different picture what seems to be a young church that's growing in Paul's day, by the time John writes, just three decades later, is in serious danger. Read with me Revelation chapter 3. We'll read verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, cold, nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray with me. Father, may we who have ears hear what you speak to the church of Laodicea. In Christ's name, amen. You talk about a falling away, Jim. You talk about this tendency for us to be too comfortable and not want to get out. That's exactly what's going on in Laodicea. Laodicea was known for three things that we know of. Uh, most of the record from history it doesn't tell us much about the city, but we do know three important things about the city. Uh, well, four really, but I'm going to hold the fourth one for a minute. First, we know that it was a banking center. So there was a lot of wealth in Laodicea. In AD 17, that earthquake that completely destroyed Philadelphia and many other towns, um, did a lot of damage in many towns, also did damage in Laodicea. They got a little bit of help from the government, but a little bit later in AD 60, there was another earthquake that hit dead on Laodicea, destroyed the city. They rebuilt it with their own funds. No money came from Rome. No money came from other towns. They paid for the re rebuilding themselves. Now try to find an American town that gets devastated by a hurricane who rebuilds on their own money. New York City wouldn't do that. Los Angeles wouldn't do that. Washington, D.C. wouldn't do that. Mobile, Alabama wouldn't do that either. Neither would any, neither would any other city. We would be devastated. We wouldn't be able to afford it. But Laodicea was so rich that they could rebuild their entire city from an earthquake. That's rich. Not only were they rich, not only did they have a thriving banking center, a financial district to be rivaled in its time, they also had a medical school that was world famous. So like Birmingham in the South has the medical school that is known far and wide as the best in the region. Laodicea had the best medical school. And one of its products happened to be this little pill that you would grind into powder and kind of work it into a paste and put it on your eyes so that you could see better. Now, uh, that sounds kind of strange to us, but some of you have had pink eye, right? You've had the little drops that you drop in your eye. Yeah, this is what that kind of thing would deal with. It would deal with diseases of the eye. It wouldn't deal with blindness. It wouldn't deal with, you know, anything like that. But it would deal with things like pink eye or something like that. Okay, so a disease in the eye and this stuff would kind of help prevent that and help cure it. They were known far and wide for the production of this medicine. The third thing they were really known for was their cloth industry. They would they would make this dark, dark, almost pitch black cloth clothing. 
they they had the dyes nearby, the stuff that they would make the dyes from, and it would make such a dark purple that it was almost black. And they were known for that, known for distributing that around the world. This was a town that was doing well. It was right on the roads, right on the trade routes. You think of an Atlanta where a bunch of interstates all come into one place. This is that kind of place in Laodicea. Folks coming from all over, trade routes, major routes all coming through, and they all cross right at Laodicea. This is a town that was built for trade, built to make money, and it was rich. It was prosperous. Life had to be easy in Laodicea. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of a place? Maybe, maybe a place that has the lowest unemployment almost in its history, a place where People make more today than they've ever made before. Not just in the number of dollars. You, some people say, man, I wish I could go back to when a Coke was five cents. Do you realize now it takes less time to earn money to make a Coke, even at minimum wage, than it did when a Coke was five cents? It takes us, I can't remember what it was. It used to take us weeks I forget, it was some kind of product, some kind of cheap product that now only takes us like half of a second at minimum wage to afford. Y'all, we are rich beyond measure. We are so rich. We don't even know how rich we are. Go do this. Go online and search for the world wealth calculator. I forget exactly what it's called, but you can put in your income, your annual income, and it will tell you what percentage of the world you are in. I did mine one time when I was a bank teller. Bank tellers don't make a lot, okay? I was in like the 87th percentile or something. I'm making like maybe $15,000 a year, and I'm in the 87th percentile worldwide. Boy, that put a whole new, that whole, whole new perspective on that. That's crazy. Our poverty level in the United States for a family of four is a little over $21,000. That's poverty. There are parts of the world where $2,000 is average or above average. We are filthy rich. There's a reason that, that phrase, filthy rich. You don't ever hear clean rich. It's filthy rich. Because that's what money does to us, doesn't it? It makes us filthy. You ever see someone that really needs to go bankrupt because of how they live their life. Yeah, you ever see someone who's so rich, they have no care for anything. We are so rich, we have to make up stuff to be mad about. My internet went down because of a bad storm. I'm mad. You have electricity almost all the time. And you're mad that you can't look at Facebook for the next 15 minutes. Poor pitiful you. Y'all, y'all have seen these third world or rich world problems, right? You have rich world problems. <laughs> you say you don't. You've had how many braces? Two. <laughs> two. Yeah, that's what he did. He said two. With three fingers up. Good job, Malcolm. We, we are so rich. And just like Laodicea, the trap is so easy to set. You know what the trap was for Laodicea? Get comfortable. Relax. Sit back. Kick your feet up. You got it made. Jesus says that he is the amen. Amen. Isn't that the end of a prayer? You know why we say amen at the end of a prayer? We want God to find it true. That's what it means truly. 
It's interesting because we would say amen at the end of a prayer. Jesus would start sentences with amen. He'd say, amen, amen, I say unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Except a man be born again, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Verily, verily, I say unto you. It is easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. It's pretty hard for a camel or a rich man to get through an eye of a needle. Now, we might try to make our needles bigger or our camels smaller. Do you get the point? What he's saying is, I'm telling you the truth. I don't need another witness. I don't need anyone to verify. I don't need fact checkers to make sure that I'm right. I don't need anyone else to put their seal of approval on what I'm telling you because it's already been approved because it's what my father has said. I'm telling you what the Father has told me to tell you. And because it comes from Him, it doesn't need a a motion. It doesn't need a second. It doesn't need a vote. It's already guaranteed true. I am the amen. These are my words. The words that are true. The words that have already been vouched for. The faithful and true witness. Now, why would Jesus call Himself faithful and true witness? Why would Jesus tell us that specifically? Well, look back in chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1. Hold on just a second. It's not verse 7. Oh, no. That's right. I'm sorry. I I was reading about this a couple of weeks ago. I was doing this last week before last Sunday night, and I'd forgotten this. This isn't in chapter 1. Jesus doesn't talk about himself. In this vision that John says, he doesn't mention Jesus as an amen, as a faithful and true witness. So with all the other churches, he's talked about things that Jesus has specifically said, things that he's seen in Christ. And yet here he says something that isn't there, but it is there. Listen listen to his description again. See if you can pick it up. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like furnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you have seen and those that are to take place after this. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's not there, but it is there. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? It's there. It's just not stated there. John has seen a picture. John has seen a vision of what Christ looks like, who he really is in the as close as he can get to the fullness of his glory. And that's got to be a faithful witness. John is not describing Jesus based on the way Jesus appears in this vision. He's described Jesus based on the way that Jesus walked with him day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year in his ministry. The way that he has come to know Jesus over the years since Christ's death and burial and resurrection and ascension into heaven. John is telling you who this Christ is out of a personal knowledge, not just out of something that was opened up in this vision. He's giving you what he has seen in Christ over many years and known him to be. This is not just a description based on one event. This is a description based on a lifetime of following him, that Christ is a faithful 
and true witness. It's amazing how different our picture becomes of Christ when we look at him in one particular instance versus when we walk with him and talk with him and live with him and honor him and serve him and follow him over the course of our lives. Our vision just gets so much bigger of him. At first, it's like looking through a paper towel roll where all you can see is that little hole. But over time, it becomes two paper towel rolls and then becomes one of those big pipes. And eventually, we just see more and more and more of him. John knows him as the faithful and true witness. In the beginning of God's creation, the word here for beginning can be beginning. It can also be the thing that begins. It can also be the thing that's involved from the very start. I think instead of beginning of creation, maybe we should read this as the beginner of God's creation. The one who initiates it, who starts it. He says, I know your works. He said that to every single church. I know your works, but nothing good here. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. I've heard this preached before and preachers are like, God would rather you be completely against him or be completely for him than to be kind of walking the line in the middle. And that's not a faithful exposition of this text. Think about it. In Colossae, I've I've kind of held this uh, thing back for a second. In Colossae, the waters they had, freezing cold. You could, you could get a drink of water in Colossae and, and get frostbite. I mean, it was cold. Not literally, but you get my point. Now, have you ever had a cold cup of water on a hot summer day? Boy, it's refreshing. Best thing I've ever been given was a cold bottle of water on a hot Arizona day. I'm walking streets trying to invite people to church. I knock on this one house. She's got a little plaque by the door that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I said, we'll see about that. (laughs) A lot of folks would have different things, you know, Mary or something like that in the yard. And, um, but she had that there and I knocked on the door and I said, I'm out just telling people about this church, but I wonder, is, is there something that I could pray with you about? And she said, Oh yeah, come on in. Turned out she had a son that had a whole lot of medical problems, all kinds of apparatuses, uh, machines that were basically keeping him alive and, and all kinds of problems and things. And she told me their story and told me about all that. And I prayed with her for her son and for her and her family. And she offered me water. And I said, I've got, I've got some water in my book bag. And she said, no, no, it's, it's too hot out there. Your water's probably hot. And it was. <laughs> it was hot water. It was not very good. She gave me a bottle of cold water. That's like 115, 120 degrees outside. I don't care. It's hot when it's that hot. It don't matter that it's a dry heat. It's radiating off the sidewalks. You feel like you're in a convection oven. Because that's all it is. It's sidewalks all over the place. This is Goodyear, Arizona. And it's just sidewalks everywhere. And a few tires, because there's a Goodyear plant. That cup of cold water, man, that was, that hit the spot. It's refreshing. Cold. Man, it just, it rejuvenated me. That wasn't the only thing that rejuvenated me about the visit. Just meeting someone who was a fellow believer, who really was her and her house serving the Lord. That also rejuvenated me too. But I'll never forget that water. 
We talked about the hot water that Hierapolis had, the, the water that would rejuvenate, restore achy muscles, the, the water that would almost seem to make those pains go away. By the time that hot water from Hierapolis traveled through aqueducts and got to Laodicea, Laodicea didn't have its own water supply, so it had to, it had to get water. From the time it came, by the time it came from Hierapolis, a few miles away, it wasn't hot. It's tepid. How many of you like hot, hot, hot water for showering, for whatever, making tea? You got to get it hot, right? How many of you like cold, cold water? Yeah. How many of you just say, give me 80 degree water? Hot water is the kind of water that, from a spiritual standpoint, it's the kind of water that rejuvenates. It's the kind of water that invigorates. It's the kind of water that helps heal people who are broken. Helps restore people who who feel like they are all achy and and all their muscles are are cramping and they're just feeling terrible. And and the cold water, the cold water that rejuvenates and refreshes from within, the cold water that that goes down your throat and soothes the ache, that 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 just makes you feel alive again, that re, that re, restores your energy. The tepid water ain't good for nothing. In fact, tepid water is the kind of water that grows bacteria and various life forms you don't want to think about at the fastest pace. Hot water will kill it all off. Cold water keeps it from growing. That warm water just gets nasty. The problem with Laodicea is they're a form of Christianity that's a lukewarm. Oh, there's a slight temperature to them, but not much. And they're really just growing bacteria. They have been playing so long this game of church that it's all superficial. It's a facade. It's not real. And I know your works, he says. You're not cold or hot. Just get one or the other. Get in the freezer and get cold and rejuvenate somebody. Get get warmed up and be useful for something. Help heal the broken. Do something worthwhile with your Christianity, but don't just be lukewarm and be sliding by by the hairs on your chinny-chin-chin. Don't just be sitting there waiting for God to do something and not willing to get up and get involved. Don't just say, oh Lord, it will be great when you take us home and not be willing to get in and fight in the fight that's going on right now. Make a difference in the community that you're in right now. Stop being so lazy. This isn't like Sardis where they've fallen asleep because of bad doctrine. They've just gotten lazy. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. He continues, for you say, I am rich. And they were rich, materially. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. He is directly attacking the way this church views itself. This church views itself as rich. This church views itself as, as along with the city, as the, the source of, of the medical school and as the place where people come to get their fine, dark fabrics. Jesus says, you're poor, you're naked, you're blind. You're not anything you think you are. Take a good long look in the mirror because that person that you see is not the person you think you see. I counsel you, he says, to buy from me gold refined by fire. Do they really need gold? No, it's not the physical gold they need. 
It's the things that will last. Whenever you see this phrase refined by fire, think about the things that will last into eternity. Buy from me the kind of gold that's going to make it through into heaven. What kind of gold is that? That's the gold of things like wisdom and righteousness. The currency of heaven is not a physical metal. It's righteous living. There's a proverb that says, like, apples of gold in a setting of silver is 1522, I believe. I believe it's 1522. I might, I, I got all the proverbs mixed up. There were so many of them that I was studying for so long that it's like, I know what they all say, but I have no clue where they are. Uh, nope, nope, that's without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. Good verse, but not the one I was thinking of. It talks about apples of gold in a setting of silver, and that's, that's being, oh man, I wish I could remember where that was. He says, buy from me gold refined by fire. Buy from me the gold that will last so that you can really be rich. Not just the gold that's, that's, that, that comes along in this world and that you leave behind when you die. Buy from me the kind of gold that will last. Buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Now their garments were deep, deep, deep purple, almost black because they were so dark with dye. Imagine the contrast. You think you're clothed in these nice, deep, deep purple raiments, but really you're naked. Buy from me white garments. Now we know what the white garment is, right? That's the righteousness of the saints. That's the, 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 the things that everybody wears in heaven because while they are around the throne praising the Lord their God, they have been made pure, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so they wear these white robes of righteousness. That's the kind of thing that he's saying. You don't need nice, expensive clothing. You don't need a fancy suit. You don't need a brand new dress. You don't need clothes that you can buy from a store or buy from a merchant or make with your own hands. You need the kind of clothing that I provide, the clothing of righteousness that shows that you have been changed from the inside out by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. You need the kind of clothes that last, not just the kind of clothes that make you look good while you're here, but that you're going to leave when you go. Buy from me. Buy from me salve to anoint your eyes. Oh, you think you've got the market on eye salve, but you're blind. You don't even know how wretched and pitiful you are. Buy from me the medicine that will heal your sight. Buy from me. Do you remember... Do you remember on the road to Emmaus, he's talking to these two guys and it says that he broke the bread and at once their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Do you remember that? These people think their eyes are open when they're shut. How many folks do we know that are walking around with closed eyes, painting eyeballs on the outside of them, some of them? Y'all know what I'm talking about, all that heavy eyeshadow and stuff, but they can't see. They're blind. They don't see the truth of Scripture. Some of them, because they're closing their eyes, they don't want to see it. Some of them, because they've long abandoned the truth. Some of them, because they've just always been taught. You don't need that. I don't want to get too much into political discussion uh, in this pulpit, but I'm convinced that there are some folks that just want everybody to be blind. And I'm going to be honest with you. I wouldn't be surprised to see that they're coming from both sides. There are folks that do not want you to see the truth. But God says, come by, I sat from me. Open your eyes so that you can see those whom I love. I should mention here something that I had never heard before until I read it for myself. Okay. 
William Mitchell Ramsey wrote a very good book on the seven churches in Asia. Um, he's someone to, to look up, Daryl. I know you, he's, he's one to look up. And if you go to Faulkner's library, they have the book. Um, I don't know that it's public domain, but I know they have the book and others have the book as well. It's one of those, it's one of those books that when you're studying, it's, it's the one that a whole bunch of people reference. And so, you know, if you read like several different sources and everybody says, read what this guy has to say, you need to read what that guy has to say. Um, it's, it's one of those kind of works. And he says that he believes that the rest of this is not to Laodicea. It's a summary, a postscript that goes to all seven churches. And in a way, it kind of is. But in a way, it's specific to Laodicea. Let me show you what I mean. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You could see how that would apply to all seven churches. The zeal would definitely apply to all seven churches. The repentance to at least five of them, right? Because God doesn't say anything bad about Philadelphia. He doesn't say anything bad about um, Pergamum or Smyrna, excuse me. But you could see where... People would need to repent in all seven of these churches. That all seven of these churches would need to rededicate themselves to the purpose God has for them. But at the same time, this applies very directly to Laodicea. This lazy church needs to repent and needs to get it right. Get up and get moving. Be zealous. You know, you know what you cannot be when you're zealous? Sitting. You can't do it. Some of y'all know this from singing in choir. You don't sing nearly as well when you're sitting down as when you're standing up. We can't even sing well sitting down. Some of y'all think, well, I can. No, you can't. Uh, it's okay. Neither can I. We're, we're all on the same page there. There's something about standing up, giving your diaphragm room to move. It just makes your voice better. You can't be zealous while you're sitting. You got to get up and get moving. That's a direct message directly to Laodicea. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Look at the picture of communion that's involved there. He says, if you hear me, I'm knocking. If you hear me, open the door and I'll come in and we will share a meal together. The most intimate way of sharing life with someone else in the ancient world was to share a meal. When you eat with someone, it is, it is a kind of intimacy that, that is only surpassed within the marriage. Eating with someone, sitting down and sharing your food with them is as close as you get to a full bond with another person. That's why we take communion together, church. That's why, that's why we don't do communion as individuals. We do it as a church. That's why we eat together and drink together. Because we recognize that it's not communion if everybody's doing it on their own. Now, I'm not saying you're sinning if you're not doing it that way. I'm just saying that I like it better. And I'm the pastor, so I get to, I get to have a say. The, the picture of all of us eating together and drinking together is just a beautiful image of our unity in Christ. And that's what he promises here. He says, I'm knocking. If you hear my voice, open the door. If you hear me, let me in. So many of us. So many of us would leave him at the door thinking he might be a burglar. What kind of burglar would not? But anyway, so many of us would leave him outside because we're too busy. We don't even hear it. So many of us would leave him outside because, well, it's not our schedule. Too many things to do. Gotta, gotta stay on it. 
Some of us aren't even home. This is a church that needed fellowship with Jesus. Needed it bad. They were playing the games. They were going through the motions. But they hadn't had Jesus in that church in a long, long time. The one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I have this red chair. It is the perfect size for me and two kids. I sit down first. And the kids sit one on each side of my lap. Especially the babies. They're a great size for this. The bigger boys, it, it, starting to get a little uncomfortable. They're, they're, they're getting a, they're, they're getting a little heavy now. But I can still do it. I can picture Jesus saying, come, come up here, sit with me on my throne. Here. Get in granddad's lap. Come sit with grandma. That, by the way, does not mean you sit while he does the stuff and you're just sitting there like, and this means you, you're going to come join me in my reign. Does that mean that we're, Equal with him? No. But we get to help him exercise his rule. That's the way he attended it originally. Genesis chapter 1. Be faithful. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Take care of all this stuff. Adam, Eve, I made you for this. Exercise my reign here on earth. That's what we were intended to be. We were intended to be the managers of God's creation on his behalf. We were intended to be like a priest where, where uh, we would represent God before the earth and we would represent the earth before God. Sin messed everything up. Through Jesus Christ we have the chance to rule again. Not because we are so great, because he is. And the work that he's doing in us to cleanse us will bring us back to that place where we can rule with him in righteousness. If, you, if you've ever read or watched uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe the storyline is these four kids, Edward, Susan, Lucy, who's the other? Peter. These four kids become kings and queens of Narnia. But there's one true king. There's one king who reigns even over those four. That's Aslan. We have a king who will reign just as he conquered, just as he sits with his father, throned in heaven. He bids us to come, but we can't do that if we're too comfortable here. Church. Let us not be Laodicea and get too comfortable. May we be ever vigilant to do the work that God has called us to do. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Father, you are the King, but you invite us to rule with you. Lord, help us to be vigilant, be zealous. Forgive us when we just get too comfortable, too lazy. When we'd rather sit in the easy chair than do the work you've called us to do. God, may we not be tepid lukewarm, blah, kind of witnesses for you. Help us like your son to be faithful and true, ever working for your glory. May we not fall in the trap of Laodicea. In Christ's name.